What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions at their companies? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own successful business. Today, I am excited to be talking to the one, the only, Jason Cohen. Jason is one of the most successful knowledgeable, analytical, and honest founders that I know of. He's the author behind A Smart Bear, one of the most informative blogs for founders to learn from online. He has bootstrapped four different software businesses from $0 to over $1 million in revenue. And with the latest of those companies, WP Engine, he eventually decided to switch gears, take a different tack, and he's raised almost $300 million from investors and is now at over 600 employees, over 90,000 customers, and recently reported that they are on an annual revenue run rate of $133 million. So Jason really knows his stuff. He's been around the block. He's seen things from every angle, and he's literally succeeded over and over and over again. Jason, welcome to the show. It is an honor to have you on here. Well, that was an awesome intro. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really glad to have you on here. People tell me all the time, Cortland, you should do more failure stories. And I disagree. I think you learn a lot more from success stories like yours. I think there are a million ways to fail at being a founder and only a smaller handful of ways to succeed. So I like to bring on people like you've succeeded a ton of times. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Do you think you learn more from success or failure? And, and also looking back on your career so far, what are some of the experiences that you've learned the most from? It's actually hard to learn from either one because either way you did, a whole, you made a whole bunch of decisions and there's a lot of factors that were not in your control. And it's not even clear sometimes what factors are or are not in your control in the first place. And then there's an outcome. And then the question is, what did I learn? But to ask what I learned, like sometimes there's obvious things, but you don't know. Like maybe if you knew that and made different decisions, maybe it wouldn't have been a different outcome. So it's not entire it's not an experiment. It's not an A B test. So it's kind of hard to tell. Have I learned anything? Also I feel like sometimes with failures, sometimes there's something to learn. Sometimes there's not anything to learn. Like, uh, you know, you have some sort of problem with the product and you made the right decisions with the information you had. And you can always make up something like, oh, we should have known more. There's probably something we could have done to know more. Again, it's not clear if that's really the case. And if so, that's not a very interesting learning anyway. That's kind of always true. Maybe we could have learned more. No kidding. Or I'll give you another specific example from WP Engine. Early on when we were trying to get early growth. One thing we tried was affiliates. So that means people who have websites that teach people in our case, how to, how to build WordPress sites, or maybe they have newsletters, or maybe they have review sites. There's different ways that people have sort of content pipes to potential customers. And the idea of an affiliate is they send you some customers and if they convert, then you pay them. So it's an obvious type of channel to use. Also, it's very common in hosting in general and WordPress in particular, very common to have affiliates as a, as a channel. So it's all very obvious to do. So we tried and it did not work. We put a lot of effort in and didn't really generate much growth. And the, and the customers we got had a high churn rate and all this kind of stuff that indicates it's a bad idea. So you could say that what we learned is affiliates are a bad idea. But two or three years later, we tried again. We took a different tech tack and this time it worked better. And so to this day, affiliates are uh, still not, you know, like the majority of how we grow, but they're still important enough that we have an affiliate team and we, we do have a, that's one of the, of the many marketing channels that we use. So it would be wrong to have learned quote unquote from the failure that, that affiliates don't work in our industry. Although some of our competitors have learned that lesson. And by what, by that, I mean, they've tried it and they say publicly affiliates don't work. So that's not the right lesson. It turns out. So how do you know if you're really, this is what I, this is again, what I mean about, do you really know if you're learning something? I don't know. So on the other hand, you you know, you want to have a mindset of, am I learning? What, what can I learn? The other hand, and at a macro level, it's hard to say, I think, um, on the one hand, yeah, sure. Failures you see, uh, maybe you can identify some things you do differently, but in success, it can be hard to tell why you succeeded. So, you know, WP Engine's a success in terms of things like growth and market share and I guess product market fit and all that sort of thing. So you could say, what did you learn? Well, 
some of the decisions we made were probably very important for that outcome. And some weren't. Some we probably grew despite some of the decisions we made, right? Well, which is which? Well, of course, you try to figure it out, but ultimately, hard to say, actually. So I think it's 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 not good to be too quick to, to, to decide what you think you've learned. So you are sort of a famous giver of advice. You've got your blog, A Smart Bear. You've spent many years giving founders advice. And your experience, do people listen to the, the advice that you give? Well... When they want that advice, yes. And I say that because I get emails and or people find me at conferences or whatever and say, oh, you know, you wrote this one day and we did it and this happened. And so in those cases, the answer is yes. Surely the majority case, the answer is no. But again, there, there may not be wrong about that. So the thing about advice is generally when people give advice, they're, they're giving advice essentially to themselves. What I mean is they're, they're giving it to someone who's like them. They have the same goals, values, maybe even came from the same sort of background, the market, the product, the customers that they're in, things that have happened to be successful or unsuccessful in their life up until that point. Very rarely does the person giving advice do what, they're, what they need to do, which is to understand who they're talking to. The person I'm talking to, what are their goals? What are they trying to achieve? What does success look like for them? What does their market or product or customers, et cetera, look like? And then what would be advice that would be appropriate for them? That's something that almost no one does, which is why the advice is sort of ad hoc. So it's not evil. It's not like they're trying to mislead people um, when someone gives advice. But if that overlaps really well, then the advice is, you know, maybe relevant. But often it doesn't overlap. And so it's it, it of course, is especially with blog posts where it's the nature of the blog post that I'm just going to post an idea. And, and of course, I don't know if that applies to any given reader, <laughs> obviously. But as a reader – you can use that filter and you can say, okay, does this really apply to me? Does it resonate? And so what I would say is this about advice. Um, anyone on the internet that says you should do X, you can find an equally intelligent, expert, experienced person with a cogent argument that says you should do exactly the opposite of X. <laughs> and that's true of all X. So what do you do with that information? Right? How, how do you know which advice to take then becomes an important question because you can just sort of get whatever you want to get. So to me, the answer is you want to be clear on what your goals are. I want to have a small company forever. I want a big, as big a company as possible. I want to do this for three years and get out, whether that means selling or whatever it means. I want to do this forever. And of course you can change your mind on this because we're people and we can change your mind. It's okay. But still at any given time to have a notion, this, this is, the situation. This is my context. These are my primary problems. And these are my goals. When that's clear, you can pick up a piece of potential advice and ask the person giving this advice, are they giving it to a person with like me? If the answer is yes, then it's more interesting. If the answer is no, it still might be interesting, but you have that, that extra skepticism you can apply. And in general, um, another lesson I take from that is if all of these different, you know, if, if, if kind of anything works potentially, then take the advice that really resonates with you where you go like, yeah, that, that sounds like something I wish I had said. I wish I had made that up because that sounds so like me when that's the feeling you get from the advice, when you have that res that personal resonance with it to me, that means just take it. Why? Because if that or the opposite of it is equally valid, well, then take the thing that you're super excited about, that you know how to put that into practice, that you're already buzzing with ideas for how to do that and you're excited. Because if you're excited like that, you're going to do a better job. You're going to put in more energy. You're going to care more about it, whatever. So you know, find those things that have that resonance and then do them. And to me, that that is probably a pretty good formula. I'm asking you these questions because I just got back from an Indie Hackers meetup last night. And I've been to maybe a dozen of these all over the world and talked to many hundreds of founders. And I see people making the same quote unquote mistakes over and over again. And these are the same mistakes that I've repeated myself with many companies in the past. These are the same mistakes that people are making despite listening to the Indie Hackers podcast, despite going to conferences and watching talks and reading books and blog posts that advise them to do otherwise. You, on the other hand, have succeeded repeatedly. You're presumably avoiding a lot of these mistakes. But you're telling me that it's hard to learn. It's hard to learn from your own mistakes, and it's hard to learn from your successes. So I'm curious, in a world in which it's so hard to learn, how do you learn, Jason? Who are you listening to? Whose advice are you following? What books do you read? What is sort of your engine for improving your skills as a founder? 
I think even when the advice is out there and, and like you said, people are failing in the same way or making the same mistakes, that doesn't mean it's not useful to have that advice out there anyway. What that means is there are things where people just need to find out for themselves. I think that's probably generally true for a lot of things in life and maybe even more true for entrepreneurs because what is the mindset of the entrepreneur anyway? It's a person saying, I have a different way and mine's better, or I don't even care if it is better. Like I'm just, I just have to do it my way. Like otherwise you get a job. So a person with that mindset, like me, you, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're not going to take to advice very well because <laughs> it's all ideas, you know, nah, I don't do it my way. The advice is still useful because once you do find out for yourself and you go back to that advice that you're like, okay, now I get it. Well, now you're reading it with a different lens. And usually advice comes with something like, well, most people do this, but what we should do is this other thing. Now they're ready to hear about the other thing. And so it's still useful, even if they're not heating it right away. Now, WP Engine is now, this is the current company, is now, as you said, you know, over 100 million revenue and 600 plus people. We're growing in terms of humans, in terms of computers, in terms of uh, like all the dimensions. So the kinds of things that I am learning and thinking about are simply different than when the company is small. So what the way I'm learning and what I'm gathering that from is different. And so, for example, strategic frameworks or strategic thinking in general is really important for us now. Just finding product market fit obviously is not important in general because we're obviously way past that. But even for brand new products that we'd bring to market, it's still not the usual way you'd find product market fit as a startup because we have so many resources. We have almost 100,000 customers that we can ask or see their behavior that help lead us to additional products that they will want to buy. That's not something that you can do when you're finding product market fit as a startup. That's just one example, but there are many examples where there's a product, for example, we could probably launch because we have such a great sales and marketing engine. We could launch some product and make a, you know, certain millions of dollars a year off of it in the first year where a startup simply couldn't because of not having that engine yet. And so that changes the kind of product that a startup might come to market with first. So again, this isn't about good or bad or better or, or anything like that. It's just different in kind. It's just different context. So now the way I learn is not going to be reading blog posts by, you know, 37 signals. It's going to be strategic thinking, systems thinking. And so for me, often books can be better for that than a blog post. Although there's stuff like maybe, maybe Harvard business review type of stuff, which still falls in that category of something that's strategic. You know, you don't really take a book and implement every idea in it, but rather to inspire ways that you think about things. So for example, Everybody quotes it, but um, the innovator's dilemma is a typical sort of framework, which does happen to apply in our market. I think people maybe over apply it to like every market they can find. In our case, it's actually true for enterprise content management systems. WordPress is disrupting in exactly that way with exactly that pattern of it starts out being inexpensive, but also not very good. But then the technology gets better. And that's what exactly what we did as a company is, ca- is cause that betterment of technology, thereby making it a practical tool but still much less expensive than the normal enterprise stuff. And so that's a key way in which we win enterprise deals. So that's perfect. So actually the book that I really like on that topic is not Innovator's Dilemma, but the sequel, which is called Innovator's Solution, because the original book describes the situation, which is cool, but the sequel describes what you can do about it. How do you go about disrupting? What are some ways to think about it? If you know the jobs to be done, framework that came out of the sequel, not out of the first one, for example. It also talks about if you are an incumbent, what does it mean to stay that way and not get disrupted, which we can we can start seeing that in some of our competitive market where we're the incumbent. So we kind of have both sides of that. Therefore, that's that sequel book is pretty useful in our current situation, for example. So I find uh, books and stuff like that. Also talking to other um, other executives at, at larger companies. In other words, people who have the same similar experience, this is what everyone does is find people with similar experience that are maybe two to four years ahead in the journey, which is far enough ahead that they have some perspective and can lend some thoughts about what they did and what worked and didn't work kind of stuff. Of course, subject to the caveats that we just talked about, but still, but not so far ahead, like uh, 20 years that they forgot what it was actually like, <laughs> which I think happens as well. So something like that, the two to four ahead, two to four years ahead person is probably an experience set that's uh, that's useful. 
and, and if you're serious about what you're doing in terms of the, your company, then you'll find a lot of people are, uh, are eager to help in that sense. You could say mentor, but it doesn't have to be so formal. What I think people are not interested in is, hey, I'm not really doing anything. I'm not really serious. I have a day job, but can I pick your brain? That's really uninteresting. But someone who's really got something going, really working hard at it, has some interesting traction, and uh, but also has the typical problems that you have, that's just intrinsically interesting to folks. And so that's um, that's a good message to try to get a launch or something. Let's talk about this process of getting serious with what you do. If you are, let's say, a developer at Google, you've got a cushy salary, but you really crave a little bit more freedom. You want to work on the projects you want to work on. You want to build your own company that has a lasting impact or that you can control. It might be hard to make that decision. How do you know whether or not you should be a founder? And I think a lot of people listening into the show are in that exact position where I wouldn't say they're not serious, but they just haven't yet decided to sort of take the leap. How can you know if you're in that position whether or not it's a leap you should take and what are some of the things you can do to make it easier? Well, I don't know why it should be easy. It's scary. You are jumping off. You don't really have any objective way to know if this is right. You're going to be spending your savings or whatever. It's also your reputation. If nothing else, you're telling your coworkers and your family and your friends, I'm doing this. And so if it doesn't work, you know, that's going to be your story. So I don't know why that should be easy. So I think on the other side, you know, if, if you hear any stories of founders, usually, usually the story is not, well, I had this cushy job and I thought, well, maybe I'll just try this thing because it sounds kind of like maybe. Like that's, that's not the motivation. It could be a compelling event. Something happened and so I did it. Or just something internal. I just can't work for anyone else right now or maybe ever again. <laughs> I have to do this. You know, it's, uh, I don't think it's something that you just sort of slide into, but what you can do is be somewhat planful or thoughtful about how to take the leap. You can say, okay, this is how much savings I can, I can spend until this is not okay anymore. You can do a whole lot of uh, research or product market fit type research first to, to, to have more of a feeling that like maybe this will work. I think just quitting your job and not not having talked to any customers to see if whatever your idea is is worth doing, that doesn't sound right. Like you can do that while you have a job. It'll take extra time. You'll be working nights and weekends. But again, like if you don't want to work nights and weekends, then you should definitely keep your day job at Google because that's what it takes. So, you know, you can you can certainly put mock-ups in front of people or otherwise, you know, test your ideas. And of course, that's a whole question. How do you test your ideas? Which of course we can go into if you want. But anyway, there's you know, of course you can do all that kind of stuff while employed. In other words, you can gather some evidence, even if it's not very, you know, super objective, it could still evidence um, that this is actually a risk worth taking. If you're worried about reputation and, and it's okay to be worried about that, ego's okay. I think a lot of companies get started because of ego. Uh, it, again, like I, my way's better. I got to do it is an egotistical thing. So I don't think that has to be bad. I mean, that certainly was compelling for me. That's what's also why I started the blog because it's nice when people say, Oh, well, you row is really great. That really helped me. Like, that's nice for my <laughs> ego. I and mean, what else would I do that for? Right. So there's nothing wrong with that. But still, like you could say, well, how do I mitigate the possible reputation damage? And you can say you're running a test. right? You could say, look, I've done some research. I, I'm going to make a go of it. I know it may not work, but I'm going to make a go of it for six months. And like when you describe all that, it sounds pretty rational. If it doesn't work, you still sound like a rational person. So, you know, you can even mitigate that part if you want. So, you know, you can be thoughtful about how you go about doing it to mitigate the risk or the, or the, or the downside or limit the downside. But, um, yeah, like if, if, uh, if you're like, well, I don't really have an idea. I don't really want to talk to customers. I don't really feel like doing that. I like my weekends. Well then, then you're, then you shouldn't. That's not, that's not what it's like. That's a hard thing to admit to yourself to, to say, Hey, you know, maybe I shouldn't be a founder, even if, all the sort of good things about being a founder, all the shiny things really appeal to you. Maybe you're not the sort of person who's cut out to go through the harder parts. And I mentioned my, in my intro that you're an honest guy. I've watched a lot of your talks and you're very honest. And I don't just mean with the audiences that you talk to. I mean, you're honest with yourself. You're good about not lying to or misleading yourself as a founder. And I think even when you find yourself doing that, uh, you're pretty good about saying, oh, actually the, the truth is, you know, I'm, I'm stroking my own <laughs> ego. You know, the truth is, I think a good example is you gave a talk recently at the Sasser conference where you talked about how you're hesitant to make a particular hire 
And the reason was, at the end of the day, because at some level, you were worried about not getting the sort of credit and kudos that you wanted to get as a founder, someone else sort of stealing your glory. I think that's something not a lot of us would admit or even realize is true. It's hard to be honest with ourselves. Right. It is very hard. How do you get to be that honest with yourself as a founder? And I'd also like to talk about what are some of the things that we as founders commonly lie to ourselves about, especially in the early days? Oh, man. What do we not lie to ourselves about? Aren't all founders the smartest person in the room always? And their ideas are better even on subjects that they're not expert in. Like if you're an engineer founder, then you think every business problem can be solved with code and marketers are not that useful. Salespeople are coin-operated. Finance is not necessary because you're good at spreadsheets. I mean, it goes on and on about how you're, if you were saying in words what your behavior is, right? That's what that would say. And then in the subjects that you are expert in, like say engineering, um, or development, great. Well, then once again, your ideas are going to be better than than whoever else's ideas. Uh, you know, the next developer on the team's ideas because they're yours. Um, you're probably terrible at managing people, especially if you're an engineer, because most are. Just because you're the founder, you end up being you know the CEO or some kind of leader like that. But man, like most engineers who are super smart, and even those that are good at product as well, very few of them are good at leading people or even know what that means. They think the only part of the interview process is whether the person can code. They have no idea how to understand what other people need or personalities or performance management or establishing a culture or any of these things. Don't care or um, pay lip service to it. Yeah, your actual motivations for the company, your real goals for the company. Boy, people lie to themselves about that all the time. I feel like uh, sometimes you see overreactions on social media on that basis. In other words, if you're a bootstrapper, you probably like overreactively hate TechCrunch and VCs. And if you raise money, you probably overly dismiss bootstrap companies. Like that's a good example of what, I mean, just objectively, why in the world would you not just say there are many kinds of companies and many kinds of journeys. And that's cool that all those can happen. Like just, I mean, you could say VCs are evil or I don't know, whatever you can say that, I guess. And some are, but like some bootstrapper founders are, are evil too, by the way, in the way they treat employees, what they do, whether the success is shared with all the people that took risk or not. Like there's some pretty evil bootstrappers out there as well as evil VCs. And of course, all vice versa on both fronts. Why wouldn't you just say that as opposed to these weird uh, extremes? And again, I think uh, you can trace that back to a lot of that bias of like, well, whatever I'm doing is right. And that means you're wrong or maybe envy. I wish it were like that, but I'll, I'll sort of react to that in a way that I'm almost arguing to myself that I made the right choice, even if maybe I didn't. And I'm not trying to call any one person out. I'm just saying all of that just doesn't feel pretty, doesn't feel that genuine to me. Right. <laughs> it feels like justification or something like that most of the time to me. So, I mean, what do we not lie to ourselves about? So, it's ultimately not very productive to do that because you're not getting to the truth. It's probably not healthy either. But even if you set that aside and you want to be Vulcan about it, it probably doesn't lead to the best outcomes for the company. If you're lying to yourself about the performance of all the aspects of the company, the performance of marketing, of sales, of finance, of engineers, of product, of design, of your own way that you are contributing or holding things back. I think the more honest you are about that, just with yourself, if nothing else, uh, then you can improve. And while you are not honest, you will not be better than whatever you are now. And that is often the case, especially with engineering-led startups, that they, that other departments just aren't any good. And uh, usually with an engineering-led startup, the product is pretty good. And the the distribution, meaning the marketing and sales, you know, getting more customers is the problem. And rather than sort of facing that and understanding there's lots of skill sets and things to do, they don't. That's a common failure mode. And I think what, what happens is uh, also is, is um, a lot of times you haven't worked with someone who's really great at a certain position. You haven't worked with a tremendous digital marketer before or even a brand marketer. So you feel you're, that's bullshit because people you've met who are calling themselves brand marketers were bullshit. And you're probably right, by the way. But that's true of, of every discipline that most people you meet aren't that good at it. Shoot, even engineers would probably agree that the average engineer, you say, well, the average engineer is not that good. But, you know, the superstars, they're worth 10x everyone else. Isn't that what we always say about engineering? Well, the truth is that is true of marketing and sales and finance 
and human resources and everything else that a company does. That is also true. But the engineering founder doesn't want to admit that because the engineering is the best and the 10x engineers, they think, smarter and better than everybody else that you could ever even hire. But if you have that attitude, then that is exactly what you will get. You will never hire that 10x marketing person because you don't even think they exist. You will definitely not find them. So you will find what you're looking for, right? That's just one one way to demonstrate how not being honest with yourself and holding on to these, these ideas will hurt the performance of the organization, just objectively hurt the organization. So let's let's apply this to some specific challenges that entrepreneurs go through, especially in the early stages. Let's say I'm trying to come up with an idea, something that I should work on that I think is going to lead to a profitable, self-funded business. What are some of the lies I might be telling myself that lead me to come up with less than stellar idea or to have a lot of trouble coming up with an idea in the first place? Okay, so you said profitable, self-funded, yes. which I love because, number one, I just love those kind of businesses because I agree with the idea that a lot of the <laughs> a lot of VC-funded businesses don't have a business model. They agree. They just say they'll find it. Personally, I don't like that, <laughs> that attitude, but I mean, it's okay, I guess. But uh, I, I agree that's not that's kind of weird. So I like the I like the profitable, self-funded model. It also creates lots of restrictions, and and I mean that in a good way on what a good idea can be because if it's profitable and self-funded you can't be wasteful in certain ways you can't spend a whole lot more marketing and sales than you pull in a vc company can do that and maybe they even should so that they can win market share for example but when you say profitable self-funded you can't like whether you should or not is not relevant you cannot do it physically right you can't spend more than you're getting in so that creates a, a restriction of course, you could see that as a bad thing that you're restricted, but it's a good thing because when you have constraints, that helps focus on what is a good idea, what is a valid business model, and that helps you throw away ideas that are in fact bad. Whereas with a VC-funded company, it's actually hard to throw away bad ideas because you can you can afford to try any idea. It's actually kind of a harder thing to do. So, for example, and um, you got to be really clear about how you're going to get to whatever the first milestone of revenue is for you. So I typically expect it to be about $10,000 in revenue per founder is the first interesting milestone to me of a bootstrap company because at that point you can definitely have quit your day job. And it's not until everyone's working on the company full time that the company can really flourish and go see what it can really do. So obviously numbers change based on circumstance and location and everything, obviously. So that's just a rule of thumb for me. So what does what will it take, for example, with your pricing model that you've got in your head to get to 10K a month per founder? If the answer is it takes 10,000 customers or even 1,000 customers to get there, my general feeling is that's too many. It takes a long time to get that many customers normally. I know you can always find an example of a company where they got there faster. You can always find examples, but normally it takes years to get to even a thousand customers. WP Engine, our current company, you know, it's a super fast growing, big company, blah, blah, blah. Still took us two and a half years to get to a thousand customers. All of our competitors took about two to three years to get a thousand customers, even the really good competitors. And you can go down the line like it's very, very common for that to be true. Well, a couple of years is kind of a long time to be slogging it out on the side. That's just rough. And so why would that take that? And the answer is because the price is too low. If that's with why it would take a, a thousand customers. So it kind of implies this price range of like 50 to 150, maybe even $250 a month being a better price range for a bootstrapped profitable company, not a low price point, high end, but a higher, like a mid-level price point. So that end can be smaller, especially to get those first couple dozen customers, because for that, you don't even need some kind of, um, super repeatable marketing to scrape together a couple dozen customers. You can just use elbow grease. You can use LinkedIn and guest posting on blogs and podcasts and going to certain places and beating your network. Like that should be enough for some customers. Now that's not scalable. That's not repeatable forever, but it can get the ball rolling. Right. By the way, if, if doing all those things, you still can't get uh, 20 customers, then you might start questioning whether you have product market fit at all. So you can do that and then maybe you, you you need just one marketing channel to work reasonably. That could be 
advertising on one of the social networks. It could be SEO or other kinds of organic. It could be AdWords or other kind of advertisement. It could be affiliates. It could be whatever. Again, many, many, many channels to choose from. But again, you don't need it to be super scalable to get up to say two, three hundred customers, which is what you'd need if you were charging five, fifty, or a hundred dollars a month for the product. It's not totally crazy. It's not out of reach. It shouldn't take a couple of years if the product is desirable. So, pricing is an example of something that falls out of this idea of I want to be profitable. It can't take like four years before I quit my day job. You start backing into these things like pricing. Another thing, just there's many things. Um, another thing that it implies is that annual pricing is your friend because it means you get the money up front instead of over time. Of course, usually you discount for that. So you get less money total when you do annual pricing. But getting it now makes all the difference. And you can do the math yourself. You can do take out a little spreadsheet and figure out, okay, if if a third of new customers pick an annual plan in which they get two or three months free, and the rest pick a monthly, how much cash flow would that be per month? And you can play with all those parameters. What percentage would do what? What's the discount? You can play with all that, right? And what you'll find is the cash flow is like crazy different. It's like game-changing when you can quit your day job. It could be that you can quit your day job in a month just by thinking about annual pricing because the cash flow is so much better. And then you then you can come to the conclusion, oh, that's more important that the, the cash flow is more important right now to get going than the total amount of revenue I might get this year because it allows me to spend that money today, whether that means quit my day job, spend it right now on marketing or, or development or et cetera, whatever's needed for the company to get better. I can do that now. That's just so incredibly valuable. So again, it, it sounds obvious because a lot of people do annuals. It's way more important than it even sounds like it is. So those two things, like again, a VC co- funding company can do that. We do that because cash flow matters to anyone really. But you could choose not to. You could you could say, you know, but we don't care. We can burn cash uh, as long as we make more money in the long run, which you will. So you don't have to do that. But for a bootstrap company, to me, it's like you can't afford not to <laughs> because because the impact to your to how you can run your business is so big. So those are just two examples of what I mean by the, the, the constraints actually create these, these, these uh, clear ideas for what to do to make the business more likely to succeed. I love the stuff about deciding on realistic pricing and business models for hitting your goals as a bootstrapper. And I wonder why a lot of these constraints are so unintuitive. I mean, you can do exactly what you're saying. Sit down and do the math and say, wow, if I charge $5 a month, it's going to require a huge number of customers for me to get to 10K a month and be able to quit my job. Why do you think it is that a lot of us aren't doing this math? Do you think it's a result of another lie that we tell ourselves? I wouldn't quite call it a lie. It's probably more ignorance than than uh, than, uh, than trying to deceive ourselves. But I, I will say this: most things in a startup are very are, are multivariate. They're complex. Pricing. I mean, all these things pull on each other. Well, if I lower my pricing, I could have more customers, and that's good because then. Uh, I can weather cancellations better. And also I have ideas for how to charge more later. I'd rather just get them in the door now. I can upsell them in a year when I have more features. I don't think I have enough features to charge more right now. Let me me just get the N right now. That's a reasonable argument. Then you can go the other way and say, but actually uh, tech support scales with N, not with price. So that actually will overwhelm me. and, And I really want the fewest number of customers possible. That will uh, minimize my overhead. That that does, well, actually, it'll minimize whatever scales with the number of customers, like tech support or even billing. There's a lot of things that scale with the number of customers, and uh, so actually, having the fewest number of customers for the money is the best. And also, they're probably of higher quality. They may they may churn less. It is generally again all this is rule of thumb, of course, right? But rule of thumb is the more someone's paying, actually, the the, the less they churn. And sometimes even the less they use tech support, certainly in hosting in our industry, it is true that um, the lower dollar customers actually use tech support more and churn higher. It's like, yeah, but that's the lower dollar customers. What the heck? Like, so you should want high dollar customers. So that's just an example of that argument. Which argument is right? And of course, the thing is, well, there's good, there's kind of good, really solid arguments on all sides. That's the truth. And we only picked one dimension, which is a, price, but there's lots of dimensions of like, is service important at this company that you're building? 
nowadays that's something that people pick on on the other hand or you know select products based on on the other hand especially as engineers we love the idea of a sort of self-serve model where there's little to maybe even no tech support like google has with gmail where just scale scale scales and you don't have those costs okay that's fine but then service quote unquote is not part of the product i imagine the user interface better be very intuitive so people can be successful without calling tech support maybe you have a lot of documentation Maybe there are public forums. Like, what are the other things that would have to exist so people can be successful despite the lack of customer service? Or you go the other way. We're going to differentiate based on customer service. Yes, that's going to cost money. It's also why we're going to win. Because when you treat people well, they stay through reciprocity. They they spread the word to their friends and so on. And so we're going to differentiate based on service. Of course, there's a lot of successful startups that have done that, right? So again, like which one's right? And you go, well, they're both very logical. They just come with different consequences. Does that go with price? Yes, because low price and very high service might not be affordable. Anyway, so, so there's all these dimensions and they pull on each other as well, so it's complex. So that makes it very easy to either justify any particular combination you want or at minimum it just makes it, um, you know, the, the argument I just made for annuals and um, a price range between 50 and 150, that sounded clear. But if you start going through all the other stuff, suddenly it sounds muddy. It sounds less clear. So what to do about that is when you go through these different choices, making some strong decisions about some of these dimensions is important. For example, are you going to be heavy on customer service and try to maximize how much value you deliver because of that? Or do you want to minimize customer service and minimize the amount of cost you have there? Just deciding that alone, just in isolation, what kind of company am I building? What do I want to do? By deciding that, all these consequences can then flow, like the ones I just listed, and also those will flow into other decisions like pricing. So having a couple of, you might say, putting pins in things or you know, a couple of fixed points like that, that you've decided that's the deal, that helps. That helps lower the, 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 um, the field of possibilities elsewhere, so that can help you reach a consistent decision across all these items. Also thinking about the items together is is helpful. I think, again, people will think about customer service alone, and then they'll think about pricing alone or not at all. They think of it later. Like, first, first I got to see if people want to buy the product, and then I'll think about price. I say no. I say price is part of the product. When you think about cars, price is part of what the car is. It's part of what the product is. It's part of the brand. It's part of what it means to buy and drive that car. It's not a separate thing. First, let's see if you want leather seats or not. Then we'll talk about the price is not how it works. So to me, those are not separate. So I think people try to think of them separately, maybe because a lot of advice or blog posts does take them separately, just because, of course, you have to pick something to talk about. And it's hard to think of them together. But again, if you have a few fixed points and then you try to think of it together and ask what is consistent, what are consistent decisions across all this, maybe that's more helpful in arriving at a a consistent business model. Let's say you're a founder. You started your company before listening to this episode. You didn't follow any of this advice. You thought about everything separately or far too late. And you find yourself in a position that I commonly find founders in when I go to these indie hackers meetups or talk to people online, which is they've got a product. They've got a product roadmap. That's another six or nine months of coding. They are trying to sell their product for five or $10 a month and they barely have any customers but they've already invested you know, a year of their life into coding this thing. How do you get out of that situation? How do you turn it around? Oh, you just do it. Like, you know, people are worried, oh, I got three customers over 30, so I'm restricted. No, you're not. You can do literally anything you want. You can change the price however you want. You could change the brand. You could change the name of the company. You could, you could do anything. There's Now, the more customers you have, the more um, careful you have to be or the more you have to communicate and explain um, or help people along or et cetera. But typically when it's the situation you're describing, you feel that, but it's not re- actually true. 99.99% of anyone that will ever visit your website or any customer you'll ever have is still in your future and has not seen you yet. It's not too late. Now, you know, WP Engine, my current company is now nine years old with a hundred thousand customers. So then this advice is not true. It's not true. We can just do absolutely anything and that'll just work. But we can do anything. It just takes a lot more planning, communication, alerting. This is going to happen. Now it is happening. It already happened. Can we help? You know, mm-hmm. maybe we roll it out um, slowly, like all kinds of stuff. We still can do it, though. It just takes a lot more, a lot more effort. So how do you do it is 
you just assess what is it that you think it should be decide. And then, um, you know, you can decide on the right amount of process or communication needed to affect that. But the answer is probably not that much if it's early. And plus, plus you get to use the real little startup and I'm the founder card, which is the best card ever. Like we can't, we don't get to use that card anymore. If we mess up, then we mess up and that's it. Dang it. If we want to change pricing, we have to face a lot of people talking about that, right? Whereas when you have 30 customers and you reach out and say, hey, hey, it's a little startup. It's just me and a friend. And we're just trying to make this work. And we realized we have to change pricing because we thought ABC, but it turns out DEF. And we're so grateful that you were that you you trusted us early on. And uh, we want to continue doing that for the next decade. And to do that, we need to fix our business model. And that means we have to do DEF. And so we're changing our price like this and we're blah, 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 blah. I have counseled people to do that when they've needed to do things like drastically change pricing, for example. And the outpouring of support from customers is always just so heartening. Like when you're, when you're honest and open about all that, you just get people saying, that's awesome. You guys, I'm pulling for you. Love your product. I totally get it. Now, of course, you know, sure. You have 10% of people going, obviously, but if 90% say I'm with you, let's go. And 10% don't get it. Okay. Like you can do, so what? Like, that's great. And that is that when you're small, that is the outcome that you get. You are not restricted really. Just, just be thoughtful about how you uh, affect the change. Let's talk a little bit about when WP Engine was small. I know you said this is nine years ago, so we're, we're reaching back into ancient history. How did you make some of these early decisions to sort of set yourself on, for bootstrapping to, let's say, even that first milestone, $10,000 a month in revenue? Well, for sure, the most impactful thing was the process I used to validate the business idea. And the reason I know that is impactful is I had other ideas first, and I used the same process, and I was able to discard the other ideas but the idea for WP Engine, it just st- withstood the test. And so I did it and then, it and then it did work. And so again, as we said at the beginning of the call, does that mean I can, pr- does that proof that my method's the best? No, <laughs> but, but it's, it's all right. <laughs> it's, it's evidence that it, maybe it's, maybe it's good. So I would say that was really important because it, it found the company, whatever that might be and, di- and discarded other ones that, that maybe weren't right. And so w- what I did there is, you know, usually you have some idea because you've noticed a problem or you've got an idea for something, just something new, something, something different because of some experience you've had and so on. So what you do then, or if you're following sort of the, the thing that I, I did is you write down a bunch of theories you have about the market, about your customers, et cetera. So in my case, for example, like I wrote down things like the typical WordPress freelancer has 10 customers. And I write down another theory. WordPress freelancers have to log into a bunch of stuff all the time and they hate that because they have to keep passwords everywhere and it's annoying. And then I wrote down, uh, people want their sites to go faster. They always want it to be faster, 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 faster. And then I wrote down, um, everyone's worried about security and they're willing to pay more if their site is demonstrably secure and so forth. I wrote all these theories, right? Then I think, what question or questions could I ask which would validate or invalidate the theory. The second one's more important without a leading question. So for example, on the theory that they, that on average they have 10 clients, what, I, what you would not ask is, so do you have about 10 clients? Cause that's leading the witness. You would ask something like, how many clients do you have? How has that changed over time? That's getting to the answer without leading to any given answer. So you write down all these questions. I did those in a Google sheets. Or Excel. Maybe there wasn't Google Sheets. I can't remember. <laughs> so then those are the questions I would ask in customer interviews, those, those non-leading questions. And of course, what you find is that some of your theories were right and they're validated and maybe you have even more, more numbers to put on them. And some of them are wrong and you find out you know why. And then also there's brand new stuff that weren't on the list at all either way that you learn as you're talking to them. And that's all natural. You just take notes. And so every time you do a conversation, you look through your notes and you update I'm going to update my theories, adding stuff that wasn't there before, you know, maybe turning the thing I was wrong about into a negative statement. Okay, people don't want to do that, you know, right? And so sometimes that's true that you found the negative. And sometimes it's the answer is it's neither. It's all over the place. Some people say yes, some people say no, it's just not a thing. It's not a not an interesting point because people sort of think all kinds of different things. That's not a strong signal either way. 
That could be another result. So this morphs. And then what happens is this, when the idea is, so I don't want to say, I don't want to quite say the idea is bad. I think generally people come up with lots of ideas and it's hard to say idea is bad. There's surely there are good parts of the idea. That's why you're excited about the idea because there's something good about it. The real question you're asking is, can I build a business around the idea, which is a very different question. So for example, I had an idea for marketing automation, uh, sorry, marketing analytics tool. There were some basically good ideas in there. In fact, when I would do the customer interviews, when I talked about the features, invariably people would say, that is cool. I want that. That's where a lot of people stop, by the way, when they do customer interviews. They test the features. People say, that's cool because it probably is. And they say, this is a good idea. But that's not, that doesn't make it a good business. So when I started asking you know, about pricing and how they buy and other things about about their life and, and w- would this be in the budget now? Well, not now, but it, maybe it could. Oh, that doesn't sound so good. As opposed to we have budget for this right now. You would, I know I know what line item you'd fit into. Aha, now see, that sounds good. Or I ask questions about what they read. Where do they go to online? Some markets exist, but you can't get to them. You can't advertise to them. You can't find them. They're not on social media and they don't go to events. And like, so it's just hard to get to them. So the idea might be great, but if you can't get to the customers efficiently, then And it's a bad idea for a bootstrap business who does need to get to customers efficiently, right? So these are, this is what I mean about, is it a good business? You have to ask about the market. How do I get to customers? Do they agree they have the problem without me having to talk to them for 45 minutes, like a customer interview? Like, is it already obvious to them or do I have to convince them of it? And so forth, right? Like these are the things that answer the question, is this a business? So often you have a great idea in terms of features. People say, sure, but the business stuff doesn't come together. So that's what happened to me with the marketing analytics. Features good, but the business, ah, oh, it's too hard with the, uh, with the, with the cost. But the pricing was too, was, was weird and didn't really coalesce around one way. People had all kinds of different ideas that was weird. People saw different specific applications of it instead of just saying, I'll, I already know what to do with it. They would say, that would be great, but only if you do this other thing. And then the other thing was different for every person I talked to. That doesn't feel like it's coalescing around an idea. On the other hand, WP Engine, what that felt like was, of course, there were still like theories that were right and wrong and all that other stuff. But after like 10 or 20 interviews, it started coalescing. Like, wow, I just keep getting positive responses to almost everything I ask. It just keeps being the same answer, same answer. So by the time I, I did five, zero, 50 interviews in total, which took about four months because it takes forever to do, to schedule and do all that stuff. But if you want to be honest about things, right? Like the, you better get a lot of data points and it was just getting boring and that's great. Boring is good. It means you're not learning anything because you've, you've actually settled on what's basically true about the customer in the market and the business model. So if that business model works in terms of pricing, and by the way, my initial price was my lowest initial price was $50 and there was a tier that was 99 and there was a tier that was 249. So you see, I took my own advice there. There you go. I was able to validate that people would pay that through these, all these conversations. And I knew that if they would pay that, that would be the right general ballpark in terms of price per customer with that validated that, yeah, they would, if we did a couple of basic things, make sites fast, secure, scalable and have good support. See, in our case, good support is actually one of the things we differentiate on. If we did that, people would pay these, these much larger prices, 10 times what they would pay GoDaddy, for example. So the business model part was validated. So then when I went and did it and it worked, it wasn't a surprise because I did all of that work and also invalidated other ideas and was honest with myself that that was the case, that there were good ideas in there. Sure just not a good business model, or maybe it was a good business. I just couldn't figure out what it was. That's fine. You know, I just, I couldn't figure it out. Right. That's the, that's the only thing that matters, I guess. So that was the, te- that was exactly the technique I used for multiple things. So surely that was the most important thing to, to eventually alight on a business, not just an idea with that technique. So I want to do something a little bit different now and get your opinion on a few dichotomies. You might call these false dichotomies because they are, but uh, I think it's a little bit more fun to make you to make you choose one. Fun. Okay, first one, the importance of the initial idea and idea validation versus the subsequent execution. Execution? Um, very few first ideas survive, but certainly you could have the best idea in the world and without execution it won't matter. Cold hard analysis versus following your intuition as a founder. I challenge the, the, I challenge the idea that your cold, hard analysis is cold. 
I think, I think you bring bias into things. I think you read data the way you want. I think you probably don't do statistical analysis correctly anyway. And you probably don't have enough data to do statistical analysis. And therefore you have to fall back on intuition. I would say the former. It's not even a choice. There's no way to, to analyze. You can when you're Google and you have enough data points, but you don't have those data points. So that doesn't mean you shouldn't look for data. You should. But I challenge the idea that like, yeah, I'm a cold hearted Vulcan making rational <laughs> choices out of data. No, you're biased and you don't have enough data. And that's the truth. And that's OK. That's fine. That's not a, that's not bad. That's what it is, though. So when you do ha- use intuition and you're, you're simply convicted is the word I use, you have conviction on something as opposed to incontrovertible data. You can let the data point to the to that. That's good. That's good. But I do think it's good to be clear about what you're convicted about. In other words, even if you use intuition to get there, no problem. But then after the fact, like be really clear on what are your convictions. The market is like this. People will want that. Just be clear on what that is because those will be your pillars that you're building your product and marketing and other things around. You'll be building around those ideas. So regardless of where they came from, be clear about what they are. Quitting your job cold turkey versus working on your business on the side? I think working on it on the side is a good idea to a point. There are people who have been working on a business on the side for four years. I think at that point, it's not working. Something's not working. Either the business could work and you need to quit your job so that it can, or it, it really isn't working. And the reason, because you don't need it to work, you just got this thing making, you know, a grand a month, two grand a month, And it's like just enough money that you don't want to kill it, but it's just not a business. So that's the trap. I still think to the extent that you can get ahead of things. So for example, do all that customer discovery before you quit your job, for sure. That way you can fail and try another idea and blah, 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 blah. And once you have that conviction, then you can start thinking about how do I plan my way into doing this, into really throwing myself into this so that it can work. Following your passion as a founder, so choosing a product that you're passionate about or a space that you really love. Versus being more opportunistic and trying to look at what you think is the highest chance of success. Hmm. I'm conflicted because it's so easy to find examples of both. I think that I think the common answer is you need to care about the market. But when you look at lots of successful companies, they actually didn't care about the market. In fact, it's especially true when you have an initial idea but that was wrong and you pivoted into something very different that turned out to be right. Well then almost by definition, you weren't passionate about that second idea because that wasn't the idea. And yet that was a success. So I will say this, I think you need to love your customer. In other words, there are people who have contempt for their own customers. We're making this product because our customers are too dumb to do it themselves. So we make it easy. That's having contempt for your customers. I think that's a really poisonous place to be. That happens a lot when you're opportunistic and you're like, yeah, we'll get them here. That doesn't feel right. But I think it's okay if um, you didn't have like incredible visual passion for the problem. You came to that, but you had better love the customer and love solving the problem. I think that's probably true. Solo founder versus taking on co-founders in the beginning. That is a, a a personal personality decision. For me personally, solo is better. I know a lot of people where co-founder is better. So I can I can answer definitively. For me, it's solo. But I think that it, um, I absolutely do not believe there's a, there's one correct answer. That's an introspective question. What are some of the things that you can look at in yourself as a person to decide that being solo is better? Is that just something you have to try on your own, or can you kind of tell? Before you even get started? I don't know. My guess would be introvert versus extrovert. If you're extroverted and you have to do this incredibly difficult journey alone, that's going to be contrary to your your personality. If you're introverted and you have to work with someone else for 10 hours a day every day and agree on everything with them, that's probably contrary to your personality too. That's just a guess. This is not an area where I, I'm, uh, where I feel like I, I, I know a lot. Well, I'm just one data point here, Jason, but I've started numerous businesses over the years. I am an introvert. Every business that I've started with co-founders did not go well. The only thing that I started by myself, Indie Hackers, has done spectacularly well. So maybe there's something to your theory. Okay, final question here. Final dichotomy. Bootstrapping versus fundraising. Yeah, again, the the answer is, um, what is the goal you have 
for your company and yourself? What journey do you want? They are just simply very different journeys. And you need to pick a path that is consistent with the journey that you want. Jason, pick one. The other thing I'd say is, well, okay, so the default answer is bootstrap. That should be the default answer. Almost all companies are bootstrapped and should be simply by numbers, right? Just most things don't get funding and most things shouldn't. Yeah, it's very true. So what I would say is the default is bootstrap and the reason to raise money is only if you meet a whole bunch of criteria like you want that particular journey. That's, that is exciting to you. You want to go big or die. You want to have the goals of highest growth with certain constraints versus bootstrapping where the goal is to create a sustainable business. Growth is important, obviously, but the profitability is even more important because out of necessity. And so you're building a different kind of business and maximizing different kinds of things. So it just is a different journey. You know, some people don't like the losing some control over having an investor and and some don't care. So that's another criteria. So there's a lot of criteria. Obviously the, the, you shouldn't raise money unless you really believe the company can be big, meaning uh, be worth a billion dollars or more, which means having revenues of at least $200 million or more later, like in 10 years, maybe. If it doesn't even have that possibility because of the market, the product, et cetera, then, then it's definitely not a good fundraising candidate. So there's all these criteria that if you meet all the criteria, then fundraising's maybe the right path. Otherwise, bootstrapping is the right path. And by the way... If you pick bootstrapping, you can change your mind like me. I, like you said, I bootstrapped three com- well, four companies, but the last one, two years in, I then saw that all these other criteria, like the ones I listed, were true for me this time. They weren't true for me before. I made the right decision there before, even in hindsight. But this time, I'm still glad I started by bootstrapping. That was also still right. But it got to this point where I did want a different journey. The market was there to be had, which is unusual. That there's a market that large that you could maybe be the leader in is unusual. This was a this was a possibility, and so forth. There was a few things like that where wow, that actually this actually would be right. I think uh, for me this time, and again in, in hindsight, I think so. Again with the caveats that it's not an A/B test. Nevertheless, like I'm happy with the results, and and I don't regret it. So I think it was the right choice. So I, I guess I guess since you're making me pick, and rightly so, I'll pick bootstrapping because you can always change your mind and because most companies should do that anyway. Good answer, Jason. I'm going to have to steal that one from you. At this point in the episode, I would normally ask you to give indie hackers advice for how they can get started with their businesses, but we sort of already covered that. And in fact, I think this episode has been sort of nonstop advice about what people should be doing. So why don't we flip it around? Jason, what are some things that indie hackers should certainly not be doing during their journeys? You should not read TechCrunch, even if you want to raise money. Oh, gee, uh, you should not um, you should not pay too much attention to what competitors are doing. You should decide what you think is is the right thing to do and do it. You should not charge too little. That's just extremely common. Another thing is this: there's all these little quote unquote rules about what a good business looks like, which may be true for many people, but I just feel like they're way over applied. For example, they say, don't do services, only product, because service businesses aren't valued as much and blah, 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 all these reasons. I think that a SaaS product in which there are services to help, especially to help you get going, but even ongoing, can be this incredible business because they're paying you to help them be more successful and therefore be a customer for five or 10 years. They would pay you to make sure they're a high LTV customer. That sounds really good <laughs> to me. Now, that's not a Wall Street story. It's a bad story for Wall Street. It's a bad story to raise money uh, because of that rule of thumb and about gross margins. There's all the reasons that people give, blah, blah, blah. I just think that um, that's not necessarily true for a lot of businesses. And I, I like that model. I think it's a good one unless you want to be on Wall Street. And then I guess you can't do it. But why should you Why should you care what, what, you know, what models work for Wall Street? Who cares, right? Another piece of advice I don't care about is that's common is you need a unique product. It has to be unique in the marketplace. I disagree. I think there's tons of bootstrap companies whose products are really not unique. And you can say, well, they have this one feature, blah, 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 uh, I guess. But like at, at, in, a, in a reasonable person, just looking at a high level at the home pages would say, these are basically the same thing. Okay. That's fine. You don't have to do that. In fact, 
I don't want to name them just because I maybe it would be taken as a put down and it's not at all what I mean, but I could, I could easily name you companies that are bootstrapped and are in the tens of millions of dollars of revenue and profitable that are not unique. They're just well executed. It's a great company. They're great companies, great culture and blah, blah, blah. They don't have a unique product. It's a good product. I mean, good product. Don't get me wrong. Just not unique. Who cares? Maybe they're unique on some tertiary uh, front. So, uh, I don't care much about unique. It's good if it's unique. You know, I think that is a benefit if it's unique because it helps you sell. It helps you differentiate. So that's good. But I don't think it's mandatory, um, especially in well-established markets where there's already tons of competitors, huge amounts of money being spent total in the market. Um, that's probably a market where it can you can add another competitor um, kind of by definition. And how unique can it be if it's mature like that? So that's okay. So you can go make another time tracking software, another to-do list software. And you need to get attention. That part can be hard, obviously. But is is this to-do list manager really all that different than the other to-do list manager? Maybe not. That's okay. So that's another one. I don't know. Is that five? I don't know. That's a number of them. It's a lot of things not to do. And I, I think the last one was, is, is fascinating. I want to ask you one last question about that one because I think it's something that will be helpful to a lot of people listening because most people that I, I meet are just stuck in this idea phase. They think I can't come up with something that's totally unique that the world has never seen before. And so therefore... I can't start a startup. Uh, and here you are saying that you don't need to do something that's unique. Why do you think people have this misconception that you need to stand out? And what are some of the ways that you can find success and find customers who will pay for what you're doing when there's something that already exists like that in the market? I, I think it's very, very common advice that you need something unique. And then we have words like your unique selling proposition, USP. And we plaster that and so say you need that. Well, if it's not that unique, then you don't really have a USP. And so, yeah, you know, <laughs> what are you going to do? The truth is kind of, kind of calling back to a point made earlier, the company is a complex entity and all these pieces of advice, including every single piece of advice I've given today <laughs> is an attempt to sim- take a simpler view of some of it, you know, right? Like carve out some simpler piece make some conclusion and therefore come up with a rule of thumb or a little thing to follow. And that's fine. It doesn't make them those things wrong at all, but it isn't the full story. So that's why any one of them can be wrong because now if you have, because let's take the uniqueness. If you have something really unique, well, then of course that's going to be your lead when you market because people are going to go, what, huh? And you're going to beat the crap out of that thing. And you may even be missing features that other people have as long as you're unique. And so you're going to beat that drum and that you'll build a whole company around this uniqueness. And that's fine. But that does, and that's great. But that does not mean the other way that you might not have something unique is impossible. Of course not. You can just see right now there's a lot of products that are not unique. So obviously it doesn't have to be unique. But then other things follow. Like what would that mean about your marketing? What would that mean about pricing? Like maybe your thing is not unique, but it's cheaper. Maybe your thing is not unique, but it's friendlier because the other sites are all this cold enterprisey horseshit. No one can understand. Yours has the same features as just people can understand the damn thing. Or maybe some people like buying from smaller companies instead of big one. And you can be that. Or maybe um, it's not unique, but the, and it's not as it doesn't even have as many features, but the quality is super high. Yes. This other product has more features and blah, blah, blah. It's not that good. We have 20% of the features, but it's done so well. It's such a joy to use it. You know, if you can get by with those 20%, you kind of want this tool. In fact, maybe you'll buy both because sometimes you need the crazy complicated thing. Sometimes you want the simple joyous thing. I do that with, uh, for example, um, Excel and Google Sheets. Sometimes you have to go to Excel because Google Sheets just can't do some things. But most of the time, Google Sheets is better because you can share it and it's fast and blah, 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 blah. So, so what? The answer could be both. And so you can have a very successful non-unique product just because there's something else that, that, uh, that's part of your, your, your value. Maybe you're better at marketing into a certain niche. So those people find you and identify with you. And so even though the product is absolutely identical, it works. In fact, isn't that how drop shipping works? I mean, people that are drop shipping uh, businesses – the products are literally identical. They're not, they don't even make the product. They're drop shipping it from China. Like you, you can't be more identical and non-unique than that. So how do they get business? And the answer is they're really good at marketing. So they just get in front of people. So that could be how you, you know, that could be where there's differentiation of some kind where that's how you get in front of customers in some way. So what I would say is any rule of thumb like 
Be Unique, or any of the other ones, including even my own advice about price. Any of them, you can, you can build a company where the opposite is true. But there are other consequences of that that you, that you would want to be consistent with. But I think the only wrong thing I think is, you know, of the, all these different choices you have, you pick a set that are inconsistent. Like, I'm not going to be unique. I'm not going to invest in marketing. I'm not going to, and you, you know, and eventually you go, well, that just doesn't make sense. <laughs> like you need something, <laughs> something's got to give here. Right. I, I think the decisions you make need to be self-consistent. That's fair. But any given decision can be whatever you want. So if you can't think of, if you're stuck because it's not unique, then say, okay, fine. I'm, I'm going to declare that I'm building a business that is not unique on purpose. You could change your mind later. Obviously this is a thought experiment, right? Just a thought experiment. I'm declaring my business will not be unique. I guarantee it. <laughs> I can promise you it's not unique. What else has to happen for it to be successful? And you could look at other competitors and what they're doing or other markets and what are other commodity markets like and what do people do there to be successful? Get ideas for like what, what are those other things? And you might get excited about those things. I would much rather um, become an expert on X online and get business that way than be an expert in AdWords. And so I'd, I'd like to differentiate through brand and recognition than based on AdWords and features. Awesome. That sounds like a very consistent idea for a company to me. So, so, um, yeah, if you're stuck on something, you can just assume the opposite or something like this. And then, and then start asking what else, what else would be consistent with that, that, that I would have to do. So don't worry so much about the common rules of thumb. Just consider the adjustments and the trade-offs that you'll have to make if you ignore those rules. Right. Jason, you've given us a ton to think about. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I feel like I've squeezed you like a sponge to try to drop out every last drip of advice. And yet it's still only a tiny fraction of what you shared over the years on your blog and in the videos and talks that you put out. Can you let listeners know where they can go to learn more about yourself and WP Engine? Sure. So uh, my blog, which I've been blogging on for 13 years, is uh, blog.asmartbear.com. Smart, like intelligent, and bear, like the animal, because that was my third company, which I was at when I started the blog. It was called Smart Bear. That's the name. So asmartbear.com is the blog. Asmartbear is also the Twitter handle. And the current company is wpengine.com so if you uh you have a wordpress site you could uh you could take it with us and we'll take care of you all right jason thanks so much for coming on the show thanks for having me if you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast why don't you head over to itunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review if you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.